Welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. To learn more about the podcast and to access even more Bible study resources, visit vbvpodcast.com. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. Acts 19, beginning in verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, And they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. In our last study, we closed out Acts 18 with a consideration of the ministry of Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, which resulted in the conversion of a Jewish man named Apollos to a more accurate understanding of and loyalty to Jesus Christ. We will discuss him and his situation a little bit more in our study today. But for now, we simply note that after he became associated with the Christians in Ephesus, Luke says that he desired to cross to Achaia, Acts 18.27. And he received a written endorsement from the Ephesian brethren, which enabled him to begin a ministry there. In Acts 19, verse 1, that discussion continues. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Thus we find substantiation in Acts of what Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians about Apollos' ministry among the saints there, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. In previous studies, we learned that Paul had visited Ephesus after leaving Corinth and spent some time teaching there with evident success. However, even though the people there asked him to stay and work with them, He insisted on returning to visit Jerusalem and Antioch. I suggested that this was to report on the success of the letter which he had carried with him after the meeting to discuss the Judaizer controversy recorded in Acts 15, and also to collect financial support for a third missionary journey so that he would not have to deal with the anxiety of how he would fund his ministry the way he had in Corinth. In Acts 18.23, Paul, having accomplished all that he intended, set out on the third journey, beginning with a tour through the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. This is where Luke parenthetically jumps to the work of Priscilla and Aquila. And when he returns to Paul's journey here in 19.1, he has just passed through the upper regions of Asia Minor. Now, if he set out from Pisidian Antioch, then the upper regions likely refers to the high tablelands across the interior of the country. There's no record of any work done on this journey. 
but he seems to have been traveling alone, and if he was carrying a large sum of money, then it is probable that he was hurrying to reconnect with other Christians. As he had assured the people of Ephesus, he returned to them to begin a lengthy ministry of about three years there. Ephesus was the greatest city in Asia, and one of the three greatest cities of the eastern Mediterranean. The key to the city's greatness was its harbor on the Caister River. This harbor would fill with silt and had to be dredged constantly. During its glory days, Ephesus had the resources to fund this major work, but when its economy began to shrink, the project could no longer be carried on, and eventually the city died altogether as a result. However, when we meet Ephesus in Acts 19, it was a rich, luxurious, and impressive monument to human ingenuity and genius. The population at this point was about 250,000, and that would have been a diverse group, many of whom would travel to live here for its commercial advantages. When the harbor was active, caravan routes from the east converged here, and it was also the point of origin for the shipping lanes to the west. From the harbor, a marble street stretched 1,735 feet eastward and terminated at the legendary Ephesian Amphitheater, which could seat 25,000 people and hosted some of the most notorious gladiatorial games in the Roman Empire. Spread throughout the rest of the city were public baths, brothels, markets, and opportunities for games and gambling. The wealthy elite of the city occupied lavishly decorated mosaic houses that faced the streets to show off their opulence. After the time of Paul, Ephesus was to boast a magnificent library, but the most impressive and renowned feature of the city was the great temple of Artemis, or Diana. The temple complex featured 127 60-foot columns surrounding a main building measuring 425 feet by 225 feet. That was four times larger than the Parthenon of Athens. In fact, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The typical sensuality and lewdness of Greco-Roman paganism was on special display here. The statue of Artemis was literally covered with images of exposed female breasts, and the worship involved the most degenerate sexual practices with the temple prostitutes. However, through the work of the gospel, a new temple had begun to be constructed in Ephesus, one even more magnificent than the temple of Artemis. This was the temple of the living God, the congregation of Jesus Christ. Later, the Apostle Paul would write a letter to this congregation and say in Ephesians 2, 19-22, Now therefore you are members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now Paul has come back to the city to labor as a wise master builder, as he would say in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10, in this work. Luke does not mention Aquila and Priscilla, so it is possible that they have now moved on to another place, perhaps even returning to Rome. But the work they did in teaching Apollos generated an interesting situation in the Ephesian church that Paul had to address. Verse 2, 
And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Now, in some English translations, you will find the words of John inserted after the word disciples in verse 2. However, after careful consideration of the ensuing narrative, I think that is inappropriate. Consistently, Luke uses the word disciples to refer to Christians. The two terms are synonymous for him, according to Acts 11 and 26. This would be the sole exception, but there's no reason to assume such an unusual departure from his normal practice. In the narrative, Paul assumes that these people are Christians. He makes this assumption clear by asking them if they had received the Holy Spirit and by assuming that they had believed and been baptized, which is what it takes to become a Christian, according to Mark 16, 16. It appears to me that Paul found these disciples among the church in Ephesus, and he made his assumptions about them based on the fact that they had been received as members of the congregation before he arrived. When he asks the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he is not referring to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit common to all Christians. That is given as a matter of course the moment one becomes a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible knows of no such thing as a child of God who does not have the Holy Spirit in that sense. In fact, it was Paul himself who stated this in the most emphatic terms in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, when he said, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, properly speaking, the sign of God's ownership of his people. Thus, if Paul referred here to the indwelling Spirit, he would be questioning whether or not they were true believers, but that does not seem to be his supposition at the start. He assumes that they did, in fact, believe in Christ, and he further assumes that they were baptized, so Paul, at least at first, thought of them as Christians. The unfolding narrative shows that what Paul referred to was the impartation of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. See verse 6. As an apostle, he was one of only a small number capable of distributing those gifts. We've seen consistently that there were, uh, they were given, I should say, only to those upon whom the apostles laid their hands. Acts 8 and verse 18. There do not seem to be any exceptions to this rule in the scriptural record. Even when it was inconvenient, God did not circumvent this arrangement, but rather the believers would have to wait for a personal encounter with an apostle to receive these gifts. The apostle alludes to this in Romans 1 and verse 11. So what we have here is Paul meeting the brethren at Ephesus, that is, those who he regarded to be a part of the Ephesian church and evidently were regarded as part of the church by the rest of the members, and since he had not baptized them, he asked if they had perhaps encountered another apostle and received the Holy Spirit since they first became disciples. Now, when these disciples answer Paul's question, it reveals that something very strange has happened, which provokes an investigation. So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. This passage 
and this response deserves very thoughtful consideration. At first, the English reading sounds like they're saying they did not know that the Holy Spirit existed. Many readers, especially after the next comment regarding baptism, assume that the issue is they had not been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because if they had, then obviously they would have heard of the Holy Spirit. I suggest this is another faulty and unnecessary conclusion, however. When Paul hears this response, he does ask, into what then were you baptized? We'll consider in just a moment why he would ask that question. But I want us to first consider their answer. So they said, into John's baptism. Now this immediately connects these disciples with the ministry of Apollos. He had been preaching the baptism of John in this very community very recently before he left for Greece. Apollos had learned better and had been received into the congregation. These must have been his associates who, under his influence, had also joined the community of believers there, but they clearly had not learned what Apollos learned. When they said, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit, the meaning cannot be that they were ignorant of the Holy Spirit's existence. They had received John's baptism, which was only for Jews, and all Jews knew that the Holy Spirit existed. He's present throughout the Old Testament, beginning in the first lines of Genesis 1. Furthermore, if they had become disciples, in whatever sense that word actually applied to them, through the preaching of John the Baptist or one of his followers, then we should note that every sermon on record that John the Baptist ever preached mentions the Holy Spirit. The New American Standard Version and Campbell's Living Oracles uh, give this superior translation of their response. And I should mention this is the NASB's alternative reading. We had not heard that the Holy Spirit was poured out, or we had not heard that the Holy Spirit had been given. You may recall from our last study that we concluded the misunderstanding on Apollos' part was in relation to the events on Pentecost. He did not recognize that Jesus had inaugurated the Messianic Age and abrogated the old system and was therefore unaware that the Holy Spirit's ministry in the church was underway to promote the kingdom of God in Christ. Now these people are now acting as members of the congregation in Ephesus, but still laboring under the same error as Apollos when we met him. If this seems impossible, I think we should take a moment to consider how human learning works. The truth of the gospel is not intuitive. The reality is that human beings will labor and struggle throughout our whole lives to understand God's revelation. We may grasp parts of it, and fail to grasp other parts, because his thoughts and ways are very different from ours, and because we are ignorant of many important things, and in our weakness we're not capable of devoting our full strength and attention to learning better. So even honest, God-fearing, truth-loving people will be mistaken and deficient in their understanding about something all of their lives, and these may be about very important matters. Of course, our immediate concern is whether or not this ignorance impacts our salvation. We want to know if the specific matter about which we're ignorant is a salvation issue or not. If it is not, then we may breathe a sigh of relief and put that issue to the side for another time or perhaps dismiss it altogether as irrelevant. 
And yet, the Bible does not speak of salvation issues. The Bible does not make our salvation the primary point of concern. The primary concern is the spread of the kingdom of God throughout the world. Our salvation, our justification through the forgiveness of our sins has something to do with that, but it is not the main point. God is more concerned with reclaiming control over creation than simply saving sinners. If he was not, he might have contrived a plan of salvation that accomplished universalism. The fact that the true plan of salvation does not accomplish universalism invites the question, what matters more than my salvation? The answer is the glory of God, which he receives through his rule over creation. Now, all of this is important because we may wish to focus our attention on whether or not these people were saved when Paul met them. That might be our question, but it wasn't Paul's question. It wasn't Luke's question. The Bible simply does not comment on that. It was not the point. The point is that these people did not understand that the kingdom of God in Christ had been inaugurated and were thus trying to follow Jesus, probably through the use of the law of Moses in some form or another. As long as this error persisted in them, the rule of God in Christ would be lacking in their lives. Perhaps it would mean that they would be lost, but even if not, the real point is that God's purpose was deterred by this error. When Paul asks, into what then were you baptized, what did he mean? What would their baptism have to do with their understanding of the kingdom of God and the events signified on the day of Pentecost? Look at verse 4 now to see the answer. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Carefully consider this response. Paul emphasizes that John's baptism was connected with repentance. Here it is vital to understand that repentance does not simply mean moral or ethical reform. It speaks of a mental change of affection and loyalty. When the Old Testament prophets called on Israel to repent, they were accusing them of treason against the God with whom they were in a covenant relationship, and they were calling them back to loyalty to him. This is precisely what John was doing, calling Israel to be loyal to God by submitting themselves to God's anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, who he himself identified as Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says that John's message was that the people should believe on him who would come after him. The last clause, who would come after him, emphasizes that John understood Messiah's advent would mark a major change, the end of the old system and the beginning of a new one. That change was precisely what Apollos and these associates of his and many other Jews, believing and unbelieving in the first century, were missing and failing to understand. But the central command of John was that the people should believe on Jesus. What does that mean? In our modern iteration of Christianity, concentrated only on human salvation and making that as easy as possible, believing on Jesus is widely understood to be merely a mental action of trusting Christ as Savior. However, this is not how Luke has used it throughout Acts so far, and this is not what John meant by it in his message. 
To believe on Jesus means to accept him as king or Lord and to submit to him and live in persistent faithfulness or loyalty to him, relentlessly pursuing the knowledge and practice of his will in all things. This is how the kingdom of God comes to earth. This is how God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is God's greatest concern. This is what the gospel is all about. This conclusion is supported by what happened next and how Luke describes it. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now here is the only place where Luke describes baptism as in the name of the Lord Jesus. His point is not to further confuse his readers with yet another baptismal formula. In fact, this should probably lead us to the conclusion that there is no baptismal formula. Rather, Luke is emphasizing that in their baptism, they were giving their allegiance to Jesus as Lord, acknowledging that he had received the kingdom from God the Father, and that God's rule over all the nations was expressed not through Moses, but through Christ. It is noteworthy that they were re-baptized, as we might say. They had already once been immersed in water as penitent believers and for the remission of sins. We know that because those were all features of John's baptism. But they understood now that their previous experience was inadequate, probably because they had submitted to it after it had expired and been replaced by something better. Whatever the case, upon realization, they submitted to a more accurate compliance with the will and purposes of God. There is no record of any angst or concern or arguing about whether or not they were already saved and why rebaptism would be necessary. How different are modern disciples and so-called disciples? Today, the believing world is full of errors and misconceptions and practices that have no warrant and the apostolic or prophetic teachings. I don't know of anyone who disagrees with that. But any effort to work through them today is opposed by the question, is this a salvation issue? If one suggests that it is, he is accused of condemning the world to hell for disagreeing with him. If, on the other hand, he says that it is, more importantly, a loyalty issue, a matter of accuracy and living out the will of God in the world— Millions of professed followers of Christ will shrug it off and ignore it as irrelevant and not worth their time. You see, they're not concerned with the glory of God. They're concerned only with getting themselves to heaven and out of hell. And this is a very unfortunate departure from the kind of heart that the Bible calls noble. And it may well mean the loss of the people who act this way, regardless of whatever specific issue they're choosing to ignore. Here's a fact worth considering. In modern Christianity, people are baptized in many ways that are very different from apostolic teaching. Sprinkling or pouring rather than immersion, infants rather than believers, as a mere symbol rather than as an act of faith seeking the forgiveness of sins, out of pure self-interest rather than as an act of repentance manifesting the beginning of a new life of loyalty to King Jesus. If these people needed to be rebaptized after already experiencing something as close to right as John's baptism, what shall we say of those who have experienced something vastly inferior still? 
If you realize that your baptism or any other part of your discipleship is less than or different than what God would have it be, what possible reason would you have to reject improving it? And how can you claim to be loyal to Jesus if you do? Thank God for this noble example. When they heard this, they were baptized, as they now saw truth demanded. Verse 6, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they all spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. Here we have our earlier suggestion about receiving the Holy Spirit confirmed. In Luke's reports, there seems to be a difference between an ordinary and extraordinary reception of the Holy Spirit. The ordinary reception, common to all Christians, accompanies pardon in baptism. The extraordinary, concerning special empowerment which God was giving to the churches at that time, came only through the laying on of the apostles' hands. This is the first time we have seen tongue-speaking result from the laying on of hands, although Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that it was not at all unusual. However, remember what we have thus far concluded about tongue-speaking in our evaluation of Scripture. Number one, it involved a spiritual empowerment to praise God in a real human language different from the one of your learning. In this case, we assume that these Jewish believers began to praise God in some Gentile languages that were known to those around them. Number two, the purpose of tongue-speaking was a sign to unbelieving Jews especially, 1 Corinthians 14, 22, to show them that the kingdom of Messiah had come, that the old law had been abrogated, and that God had created a new man through Christ of both Jews and Gentiles, Ephesians 2, 15-16. That's what it meant on Pentecost. That's what it meant at Cornelius' household. And that was precisely the thing that these people had just learned. So it was only fitting that the sign should now be given to them as well. Throughout the history and unfolding future of the world, as the kingdom of God in Christ grows and increases, there have been more, and there will be more, strange and difficult scenes like the one we have just considered. We will continually find people who are lacking in one way or another. In fact, we will continually find lack in ourselves. But the solution to this problem is simple if we follow the Ephesian example. When you hear of the more accurate way, do it. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, come over and help us to cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of His knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. 
The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.